Welcome to Seeing Beyond the Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. Canada is very fortunate to have a strong network of universities that offer programs in actuarial science. However, the education of future actuaries can be challenging due to advances in the actuarial knowledge as well as involving expectations for students. One CIA member who has been teaching actuarial courses at the post-secondary level for several years now is Bruno Gagnon, and he joins us today to talk about how he approaches these challenges. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure. So to start off, maybe just tell us about how you've been involved with teaching actuarial courses throughout your career. Well, I started being interested in education when I became a fellow in uh, 1986. At that time, I had to pass uh, 10 exams in order to become a fellow of the Society of Actuaries and then a fellow of the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. So at that time, when I became a fellow, I finally had the time to think of something other than simply studying. I knew that something somewhere was deeply wrong. You know, I was one of the best students in my class, and yet it took me seven years after getting my actuarial degree to become a fellow. Moreover, I failed my last exam twice before finally barely passing. So for two years, I was really devastated by the thought that maybe I was not able to terminate anything and that even after passing nine exams out of 10 and having invested so many years in my exams, uh, if I add the, the university time, it's uh, 10 years. So after investing so many years in my exams, I was at the risk of remaining an associate. So remaining at the same level that I had reached one year after completing my degree, or if you prefer, five or six years before becoming a fellow. So I would have basically lost six years of my life. So the first thing I did after my SOE fellowship was to apply to be a member of an exam committee of the SOE to find out why I had so much ease with my first exams and so much trouble with my last exams. So I was a question writer and grader for four years, then vice chair for one SOA exam for three years and chair for a whole track of fellowship SOA exams for four other years. I learned that while the SOA tried to ask analysis questions and synthesis questions, that is questions that required more thinking than memory, well, candidates tended to learn all they could by heart and answered with lists. And the problem with the list is how it will be interpreted by the grader. For example, if you ask a candidate how to do or to produce red wine, you would expect that the candidate would start by answering that you must grow red grapes. But what if the candidate rather answers, here is the list of red grapes used to do wine. Do you give points because he mentioned red grapes or do you not? give points because he did not mention that you have actually to get those grapes. And then if instead of giving you the list of red grapes, if the candidate simply answer, here is the list of grapes used to do wine. And uh, the list includes uh, both white and red grapes. What kind of credit would you give? It's not clear cut and it really depends upon the, the grader because the it's not in the grading outline, but you have to interpret the grading outline. You have to interpret the candidate's answer. So uh, 
Well, I found out that the candidate provided long lists that by chance include some keywords and was not answering the question. Well, this candidate was in the position to get possibly even more points than a candidate who really answered the question, but only partially without using lists. So this is something that I tried to change. Now, in late 1999, I had completed my term of chair for the SOA, and I was approached by the CIA to be in charge of the practice education course in the group insurance track. I then had, for the first time, I had the opportunity to influence the course of reading of an actuarial exam. And I took the position that I would include in this course of reading all the things that I had painfully learned over 20 years of practice at that time, and that were not in the SOA exams. Basically, saw the practice education course material as a toolbox for younger actuaries, a toolbox that would contain what I would call the secrets of the trade. And the underlying principle or question was, what do actuaries need to know to do their job most efficiently? So I thought of teaching these things that you don't necessarily find in books, and yet these things make the difference between a knowledgeable actuary and someone who knows nothing outside their routine work. About the same time, I was recruited by a university professor to make a conference on social programs in her introductory course to actuarial science. The previous person in charge of that particular conference had made a good job of describing the program. But this person had not said a word about the problems and challenges facing these programs. Now, if you provide students with a ton of factual details, there's a risk you will bore them to death. On the other hand, if you can make them relate to important social issues and make them think about being among the workers who will be paid, maybe the three workers who will be paying for two old age security pensioners, while the program was initially set up for having five workers paying for one pensioner, then they will understand that this program will impact them directly as taxpayers before they retire and that they will have to make decisions by voting and proposals of public policy at elections. They will then be more interested than bored. After a few years, the professor asked me to give 50% of the course, and after a couple more years, the whole course. Students were, I think, they were rather happy with what I was teaching, and the university asked me to develop and give two other courses. And in all these courses, I always made sure that I was making the students aware of the impact of what I teach on everyone's life in general, and where possible, on their own life in particular. That's interesting. So let's talk a bit more about the perspective of students pursuing actuarial science. And maybe you could talk to us a bit about some of the differences you've seen over the past 20 or so years in terms of, you know, how students are interested in the actuarial career, what their expectations are. Well, the first thing I'd like to mention here is that currently there are much more jobs available to graduating students and fewer students take them compared with 20 years ago. 20 years ago, another difference was that students had to focus on their number of actuarial exams in order to get a job. Those who were able to terminate their degree with at least three SOE or CAS exams had a reasonable chance of getting an actuarial job. 
The others had a tougher journey in front of them with no guarantee of ever ending up doing actuarial work. 20 years ago, first-year students were not aware of the then tight job market and had some unrealistic expectations. Some students chose to an actuarial degree simply in order to get a well-paid job. And I remember meeting a former student who had decent notes. He had a couple of exams. I met him uh, maybe two years after he had terminated his degree. And he was working, putting bottles on shelves in a store. And uh, I also remember young foreign students who told me that they had read in a government publication that there was a lack of actuaries in Canada. And at the same time, I remembered that only a few years before, my employers, when I was a consultant, had hired an ASC, an associate of the Society of Actuaries, in a job of actuarial technician for $27,000 per year because there were simply no jobs. So even ASAs were not able to find jobs. These were really tough times for actuarial students back 20 years ago. Now, things are different. And also, what's really nice is that students are more informed. In my introductory course to actuarial science, I give them statistics about how much they can earn after they get their actuarial degree, and I give them a list of local employers of actuaries. They know that they have to work hard to become actuaries, but that their hard work is not only for the sake of working hard. They also tend to be more interested in learning actuarial science than focusing on passing courses and actuarial exams. I think they're more excited about becoming actuary, probably because they understand that as a result of the baby boomers retiring, there's a greater opportunity for young actuaries to do interesting job, or to do interesting work earlier in their career and to analyze situations or problems rather than simply doing routine actuarial calculations. This being said, there are still students who pursue an actuarial degree because they think it will allow them to earn a lot of money. A couple of years ago, a student asked me what he would have to do in order to earn $300,000 a year after getting his degree. And he wanted to earn these $300,000 three years after getting his degree. And to earn that kind of money, you need to become a vice president in an insurance corporation or a partner in an actuarial firm. A friend of mine who was in the same class as me uh, in the university retired with a salary over $1 million per year, but not as an actuary because he was president of an insurance company. Your income as an actuary depends more on your skills, your personality, and your level of responsibility than on your actuarial degree or fellowship. If you're working in a consulting firm, your income will depend much more on your capability to develop clients and on your sales skills than on your technical skills. Another difference between now and 20 years ago is the fact that 20 years ago, actuarial students saw the U.S. educational societies as the SOA and the CAS as their most important partners in becoming an actuary. Almost everyone considered that your result at SOA or CAS exams were more important than your grade point average or GPA at university. Now, mostly because of the university accreditation program, students perceive the CIA as their most important partner. And that is a very, very important difference. 20 years ago, students were not much concerned about the country where they will eventually work. 
they did not really care about the CIE, and they considered that, well, by getting their FSA or FCAS, they would more or less automatically become members of the CIE, and their U.S. affiliation would allow them to work in the U.S. Things are a little different now. There are two types of students, basically. Those who want to become members of the CIE with the possibility of working in our countries through a reciprocity agreement between the CIE and actuarial organizations like the American Academy of Actuaries in the U.S. and other actuarial organizations in the English-speaking countries around the world. And then there's those who want to work in the U.S., but they decide to study in Canada because tuition fees are much lower here than in the U.S. And these students will focus on passing actual exams. So we, we really have two different clientels that we can identify almost right at the beginning. That's uh, another difference between now and 20 years ago. Now, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned something about the skills that actuarial candidates are focused on. Can we talk a bit more about that? What are actual candidates really interested in and how is that impacting their career prospects? Well, I would say that beside actuarial and financial mathematics, they are more and more focused on advanced mathematical, statistical, analytic and data skill sets. And that is quite interesting because these things are becoming more and more important. And they can do fantastic analysis using our language. It's great for working in PNC, property and casualty insurance, as there is a lot of modeling to be done there. In life and pension, it's not as clear to me, but I think they will eventually have to model stochastic reserves. The challenge in calculating stochastic reserves is the efficiency of your calculations. If you want to calculate a stochastic reserve on a block of business, you need to make tons of calculations, and it can take a huge amount of CPU and processing time. And that is a reason why we have not yet seen many reserve calculations done on a stochastic basis. Yet at some point in the near future, insurers will need to calculate their reserves on a stochastic basis because, first of all, it is what the regulatory authorities will require. And also because it's the only way to get a sense of uh, reasonably likely deviations. If you calculate a reserve using only averages, you will get a nice reserve, but it doesn't tell you anything about whether your reserve is sufficient or not, or to what degree it is sufficient. What we do currently is that we add margins and provisions for adverse deviations in our calculations. It will give you a safer reserve, but you'll never know the degree of safety in your reserve. Is it 80%, 90%, 95%? No one knows. Only a stochastic process can give you this information, and old actuaries like me, for example, don't have the data science skills and the information technology skills required to assess the degree of safety in an actuarial reserve, much less a combination of various different reserves on all the various products of an insurer. In one of my course, I ask students to calculate the most basic stochastic reserve that you can imagine. It's a reserve for premium waiver in group life insurance. So it's the most straightforward, the most easy to model on a stochastic basis calculation for reserves. And it's interesting. It introduces them to the fact that, okay, 
here's the reserve based on the traditional method. And now here's the reserve based on the stochastic method. And you have a dispersion with the results of your stochastic reserves. And you can see here's the average reserve. Here's the reserve that is safe at 60%, 70%, 90%, 95%, and so on. So I think uh, this is fantastic. And the young are really the persons who are the best to do this type of work. And I think universities are doing a tremendous job of teaching students to think about randomness and variability of results. Now, data mining and big data are concepts that are beginning to be used. This will require a lot of analysis. But who will do this analysis? It can be data scientists, it can be actuaries, or it can be a mix of actuaries and data scientists. In all cases, Actuaries will need to understand the analysis and preferably they will need to participate in the analysis, even if it's only to get a sense of the variability of the result and of their interpretation, because you just need to change an assumption somewhere and you can get wildly different results. And when you talk about big data and data mining, it's not self-evident. And inadvertent biases may arise in any analysis. And actuaries will need to be able to track and remove such eventual biases. And for that, they will need strong data skills and predictive analytic skills. That's also the way uh, the actuarial societies, just like uh, the CIA, are moving through. We're giving more and more importance to predictive analytics and this type of skills. Another important area of skill sets that will become more and more important for actuaries is the skills related to finance and investment. Almost every actuarial calculation that you can do involves either an interest rate or a rate of return, if you prefer. It's becoming increasingly hard for actuaries to rely on economic assumptions made by someone else, especially in the current times when uh, interest rates are moving, the inflation is coming back. And even if you use an assumption developed by someone else, you must be in a position to understand that assumption and make your own judgment on it before you decide to use it or not. Finance courses are getting more and more important in actuarial programs, and I think New actuaries will have a stronger skill set in, in this domain that used to be the case 25 years ago. Another skill set that is uh, underestimated and that is currently not found in many actuarial programs because it flies below radar is management skills. Because when you become an actuary, after a few years, you end up managing people and you need to have a sense of how to interact with uh, people who report to you and how to treat them so that they feel appreciated. And uh, if they make a mistake, you need to be able to explain to them that, okay, you made a mistake. You're not the first person nor the last to have made a mistake. And it's important to pick up the mistake and correct it, but it doesn't make you a bad actuarial student. It doesn't make you a bad actuary because you made a mistake. Mistakes are simply human. So management skills are something that I would recommend young actuaries to try to develop at least a bit. That's it for the skills uh, or skill set. 
Can you talk a bit about some of the advantages that you see for students that are enrolled in an actuarial program? And I want to do that in contrast to students that operate strictly in the self-study mode as they pursue their qualification requirements. Well, this one is quite easy for me, and uh, I really love this question, because from my point of view, there's a huge advantage being in an actuarial program over studying by yourself. First of all, you benefit from the explanations of a teacher. If you want to learn something, you have to understand it. If you're alone with a book, you don't necessarily get the explanation that the author of the book, being a specialist, may have considered as too trivial to be included in the book. A good example that I can give you when I was studying, at that time it was the old part eight exam on uh, financial investment. The book made reference to something called capital I, capital O, capital U. Being a francophone, I had no idea whatsoever of what was in U. Well, it was not a U, it was an IOU. I owe you money, but... Uh, for a francophone, it was a U. I had simply no idea. It was just too trivial to be included in the book. If you learn something without its context or environment, you will miss a significant portion of the topic, and you may end up learning it by heart, which is definitely not the most useful thing if you need to apply the knowledge to a situation that is not shown in the book. Second, you benefit from the questions raised by your classmates. Oftentimes, you read the material and you think that you have understood everything, especially with the benefit of your teacher's explanations. Then someone asks a question that you would never have thought of, but that happens to be relevant. Only in a class can you benefit from this type of situation. Third, it's so much more stimulating. You will try to keep the pace with the other students, and you can discuss problems with them. If you're studying alone, you may find that the material you're studying is boring. Then you can read your material too slow, and so slowly that you cannot make links with what you have read a few days before or a few chapters before. Or you may finish reading a chapter and not remember what you have read. This happened to me. Worse, you may be reading your material while you're thinking of something else because you're alone in, let's say, a, a small box. It's much more difficult to remain focused. And when I was studying my actual exams, I used to count my hours of study because everyone counted their hours of study and everyone compared with everyone. But sometimes I ended up studying hours and hours, maybe more for the sake of studying so many hours and put these hours on record. These hours of study were not necessarily good hours. So there's a, there's a trap here on you. Think you have studied sufficiently, but you have not studied efficiently. This can very well happen if you're studying alone. Fourth, you don't lose time if you're studying in an actual program. If you're studying by yourself some form of actual mathematics or application of actual mathematics, you may have to solve a problem for which you only have the numerical answer in your book. If you're within a group and have a teacher, either someone in the group or the teacher will already have solved the problem and can explain to you the steps for solving this problem. 
and most importantly, the reasons behind each step. If you're alone, you may end up guessing what should be the steps. Sometimes you simply don't start on the right foot to answer a question because you know the answer, you know the questions, but you're clueless as how to address it. Fifth, you don't want to fall behind the others. You must keep the pace. You avoid ending up in a situation where you think you're making a good progress while you are actually two or three weeks behind the others. Because when you're studying by yourself, you simply don't know where the others are. So that's also something quite important because it, it allows you to make sure you keep the pace. Another huge advantage of being in, a, in an actual program is the fact that currently in Canada, there's 11 universities who are part of the university accreditation program of the CIA. And if you're in a program that's accredited, you can get your ACIA designation so more rapidly than by studying uh, exams of the Society of Actuaries or the CAS. And uh, another thing is that if you're in, a, in an actual program that is accredited by the CIA, you avoid a lot of duplication. Because if you're in a self-study mode, you probably will still have some courses on actual mat material, but then you have to restudy it in order to pass the actual examinations. While if you're in an accredited program, you just need to get your degree, do two modules, pass one exam, and then you're, you become an ACIA. So it's a huge, huge advantage for being in, a, in an actual program compared with doing things by yourself. So from my point of view, being in an actual program is by far much better than studying by yourself. I passed all the exams that were related to things that I had studied in the university. I passed these exams quite rapidly. Things that I had not studied in the university took me forever to be able to pass the, the exam at that time. So let's wrap up with a final question here. And I just want you to reflect on your perspective as an instructor. I know one of the big challenges is keeping your course material current and up to date with developments in the actuarial world. How do you do that? And what's your preferred way to make sure that all your course content stays current and relevant? Well, that's another very good question because a course obviously needs to be current. There's no need to teach things that do not exist anymore unless you're teaching history or you're providing a historical context. Regarding the applied actuarial science, the first place to look for recent development is the CIA website, especially the research documents, the educational notes, and the presentations made at recent CIA general meetings. If something is really new and important, it will necessarily be discussed at the CIA general meeting. There will be material such as slides that will be made available on the CIA website. I think for non-members of the CIA, it's I think six months after the presentation. Since I'm a member of the CIA, I get the documents right away. Moreover, you will find the names of the speakers. They are presumably knowledgeable on their topic. So there's a reasonable chance that by Googling their name and the name of the topic, you may get access 
to research or analysis that was made by one of the speakers at the CIA general meeting that gives you even more documentation to update your course. Another source is the research done by the other actuarial organizations like the SOA, the CAS, the IFOA, and, and so on. And then a source that's all often overlooked is simply the news. When something important happens, it will be in the news. For example, one month ago, the bad returns of the Caisse de dépôt et placement du Québec made the headlines. This may have an impact on our contribution rate to the Quebec pension plan. And if you remember, during the commercial asset-backed paper crisis in 2008, the rate of return on the Quebec pension plan assets was minus 26%, while the return on the CPP assets for the same year was minus 18.6%, a deficiency of approximately 7.5%. And thereafter, returns have been similar on the assets of both plans. So there's a net deficiency of 7.5% for the QPP due to the investment in commercial asset-backed paper. And the only way to offset losing 7.5% of your pension fund is through higher contribution rate. So don't be surprised if uh, you compare the contribution rates to the QPP and the contribution rate to the CPP, and they're different. Another source of actuarial uh, information is actuarial or financial reports, like the reports on the CPP, the QPP, or the employment insurance programs and the old age security programs, and all these programs that are managed by the, the government or government agency. There's a lot of, of analysis that's been done by the actuaries of these programs, and uh, you can peek into this analysis and sometimes find interesting things. And most generally, you can find a lot of things on the web. Unfortunately, what you find or what you don't find depends to some extent on how you search. And oftentimes, my wife and I search the same thing, and we end up at very different places on the web simply because we don't use the same keywords or we search differently. Whatever you search or find, you must always use your judgment to make sure that you understand what you have found. But internet is very, very interesting. It's a very valuable source, just that it needs some, uh, let's say, some great common sense, and uh, it's not because something is written on the, on the web that it's true. You have to validate and counter-validate, but the internet is a great, great source of information. Wonderful. Well, we covered a lot of ground today, so thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. It was my pleasure. And quite relevant to this episode, we have recently launched a new site covering all the exciting changes to the CIA qualification requirements. So I invite you all to check out education.cia-ica.ca. We now have over 100 episodes in our podcast series going back over the past three years. So we encourage you all to subscribe and you can do that through whatever platform you use to get your podcast content. And we'd like to also hear from you. So if you have any suggestions or episode ideas, you can send them to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. As well, we're always looking for content to add to our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have any ideas you'd like to share, you can reach us at Seeing Beyond 
risk at cia-ica.ca. Until next time, thank you for tuning in to Sing Beyond Risk. <laughs>